Our scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Listen now for God's word to you. Jesus left that place and went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and to throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Life is sometimes full of uncomfortable and awkward moments. Uh, We've all had that experience of thinking that someone was waving at us when really they were waving at the person behind us, right? Over the course of this pandemic, we've had no shortage of awkward and uncomfortable moments on Zoom, uh, usually surrounding something with our microphone. Either we're starting to talk and someone shouts, you're muted, or our microphone is on when it shouldn't be and everyone hears your two-year-old in the background. Um, That's a very personal example. Um, And then in our modern world, texting is one of the main ways that we communicate, and so there are awkward and uncomfortable moments when we're texting. Sometimes we text the wrong person, and hopefully when you do that, you're not talking about the person you accidentally texted. Um, Or sometimes we have those little autocorrects, so you're texting something and the word changes to something that completely changes the meaning of the message you're trying to say. Uh, Life is just full of these awkward and uncomfortable moments. It's just part of what it means to be a human, part of what it means to live in the world that we inhabit. The story that I just read for us here this morning with Jesus and the Canaanite woman is an awkward and uncomfortable story. Uh, Jesus uh, acts in a seemingly unchrist-like way. Jesus acts in a way that is inconsistent with what we expect Jesus to do. And we have to wonder why the gospel writers would include this story about Jesus at all. And you might be wondering, in this sermon series where we're talking about love, what does this story have to say to us about love? Jesus is in the regions of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, So that is just uh, north and west of Nazareth, north and west of uh, Galilee in the Roman province of Phoenicia. So this is outside of Galilee, outside of Jewish territory, And this is a strange place for Jesus to be. I want us to understand that, that Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time outside of Galilee during the course of his ministry. Uh, He spends almost his entire ministry there before he heads to Jerusalem during the the final week of his life. There are a couple of scenes where he goes to uh, places that are Gentile, non-Jewish territory, like the Decapolis, which is east of Galilee. But for the most part, he stays among his own people. And just before this, Jesus has sent his disciples on their own missionary journey. And he says to them, go only among the sheep of Israel. Stay among our own people. And so Jesus is in a place that is a little different for him, a a place that he doesn't often go, non-Jewish, Gentile territory. 
And Tyre and Sidon aren't just any old place either. Tyre and Sidon are not just places on the map that we can look at and find. In the prophets, Tyre and Sidon are attacked by the prophets as notoriously wicked and corrupt cities. So Jesus is over there. He's beyond the border of his normal experience. He's in that neighborhood among those people. And while he's there, a woman comes up to him, and not just any woman, but a woman that Matthew describes as a Canaanite woman. Now, Mark also tells the story. The gospel writer Mark also tells the story. And he describes her as a Syrophoenician woman. And that is more accurate to who she actually was. She was from the region of Syria and Phoenicia. But Matthew calls her a Canaanite. And that's not without accident. It's not that Matthew's confused about who she actually was. Matthew is making a very distinct theological point. Because remember, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. So he's making a theological connection to who this woman is. So if we back all the way up in our Bibles, back to the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Canaanites are on the, or excuse me, the Israelites are on the threshold of the promised land. They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, and now finally they have their opportunity to go into the promised land, the land that they believe is theirs by divine right, the land promised to them by their ancestor Abraham. But as often happens when people have a sense of God giving them a, land, a, a piece of land to live on, there are usually people who already live on that land. And so in this case, it's the Canaanites. And as often happens in situations like this, the people who already live there become demonized. They get described as being evil and wicked. And that's exactly what happens with the Canaanites. Deuteronomy and then Joshua, the book after that, describe the Canaanites as people who are marked for destruction, that their cities, when they conquest the land, they shouldn't be taking prisoners of war. They should completely wipe out the populations that live there. It's some of the worst theology in the entire Bible. Um, not simply because of what it says, but because of the ways that it's been used and adapted throughout history. Think about our own history here in the United States and how uh, indigenous populations were driven away because they were described as Canaanites. Or even across the board in the colonial era, plenty of people were designated as Canaanites, as people marked for destruction. So Jesus, who grows up as the faithful Jewish person he is, learns these stories. He hears the stories about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, stories that Sunday school teachers still tell today. Right, Gretchen? Did you say no? Well, that's because you, you know, <laughs> you went to seminary, you know better. Um, you, you don't use the flannel graph either, do you? You wish. <laughs> so Sunday school teachers still told those stories. Uh, Jesus probably heard about, uh, heard the prophetic readings about Tyre and Sidon, these, uh, these notoriously wicked cities. He heard the, the preacher in the pulpit on Saturdays during Sabbath worship talk about how uh, those regions should be avoided, who the Canaanites were in those days. And all of this shapes Jesus' understanding of who the Canaanites are. Remember, one of the things that Christian theology has fought uh, intensely about over the course of its history is that Jesus is not only fully divine, but he's also fully human. And I think sometimes we get this sense that Jesus, that sort of divine part of him overtakes his humanity and that Jesus has things already figured out. But remember, Jesus as a full human being lives within a particular time and place. 
And so he is socialized within a certain worldview. He's socialized within a certain political, social, and religious worldview. And so one of the things that he perhaps learns growing up is that Tyre and Sidon are places that he should never go. He should avoid that sort of neighborhood after dark, that he should avoid hanging around with the Canaanites. Of course, I'm speculating. But the uncomfortable and awkward fact that I cannot escape when I read this story is that it seems that Jesus has some assumptions and some stereotypes about who this woman is. So much so that when she approaches him, this woman that Matthew describes as a Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon comes to Jesus pleading for her daughter. Jesus at first just plain old ignores her. And the disciples are ready to send her away. And and then Jesus answers her and says, I've come only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, you're not part of the right group of people. You're not part of the scope and the scale of my ministry. And then it gets worse. Jesus says, she continues to plead, she she persists, and, and Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's food and to throw it to the dogs. That's really rough, right? Um, that phrase, Gentile dogs, Anna Case Winters, the scholar Anna Case Winters says that phrase, Gentile dogs, was a common known sort of slur that existed in those days. As awkward as, and uncomfortable as all of this is, it shouldn't be that unexpected, though. What Jesus has done in this story is he has placed himself beyond the boundary of his own experience. He has gone to a place that he didn't need to go. There's no reason for him to be entire inside. And other than the fact that perhaps God was calling him beyond the boundary of his own experience. And whenever we find ourselves beyond the boundary of our own experience, we find ourselves confronted with those that we might call the other. See, the, the Canaanites were no longer a distinct ethnic group of people by the time that Jesus was around, just as they're no longer a distinct ethnic group of people for us. And yet the Canaanites seem to exist all around us. Canaanites are anybody that we might designate as the other, anybody that we might have stereotypes and assumptions about, anybody who lives in a place like Tyre and Sidon, a place that we are told to be careful when we go there, be careful, avoid going there as much as possible. We all suffer from what psychologists call confirmation bias. Uh, I have it, you have it, we all have it. According to the American Psychological Association, confirmation bias is a tendency to look for information that supports rather than rejects one's preconceptions, typically by interpreting evidence to confirm existing beliefs or rejecting or ignoring any conflicting data. So confirmation bias looks like these two little cartoons that I found. Um, do you have any data that will fit my theory? Um, and how do you know if the news story is true, if you agree with it? Um, something we know a lot about these days, right? Um, just a real simple ground-level example of confirmation bias is the difference between dog and cat people, right? And I'm way oversimplifying it. Some people are animal lovers. They love cats and dogs and rabbits and reptiles and whatever. But... I'm a dog person. Uh, We have a pug at home named Hamilton, and pugs are barely dogs, but um, (laughs) we have a pug at home, and so if if I go onto Google and I type in why dogs are better than cats, Google will give me a bunch of hits about why dogs are better than cats, reinforcing all the things that I already believe. And you cat people, you can go on Google too, and you can type in why cats are better than dogs, and you'll find the same number of sites that will tell you, that will confirm your bias, confirm what you already think and what you already believe. 
Or the, those are written by cats? Yeah, thanks, Bill. <laughs> I, love, I love the feedback in this. I love that I get heckled in this service. <laughs> um, I don't disagree with you, Bill, but that just shows my bias. Um, or in our social media-driven culture, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those sorts of things, we can literally curate our news feeds to give us information that only, uh, give, that only reinforces the side we're already on. And, and it helps us to re- generate more negative feelings towards the other side while creating a more positive and more, a more sense of, a, of how good we are on the side that we already inhabit. Um, Warren Buffett says that what human beings are best at doing is interpreting all new information so their prior conclusions remain intact. Confirmation bias is really good at making Canaanites. It's really good at creating the other, the one who's beyond the boundary of your own experience. It reinforces our position around our own experiences while keeping those other ones at a distance from us. But here's the thing about Canaanites. Whoever they are to you, that when you can learn to listen to them, you'll find that all of those stereotypes and those assumptions don't hold up. You'll find that the the boundaries between Nazareth and Tyre and Sidon can be erased as we learn how to listen. Uh, The theologian Paul Tillich, who I told you I would quote again this week, uh, Paul Tillich in one of his most marvelous quotes says that the first duty of love is to listen. The first duty of love is to listen. Listen, not simply to hear. Some of your mothers told you, uh, you heard me, but you didn't listen. Um, listening, listening is actually taking in the, the information that somebody is giving you. Listening is, is making a sincere effort, a sincere uh, attempt at trying to understand the other person's position, understand why they think and feel the way they do. Uh, a genuine attempt to understand how their experiences have informed who they have become. Listening is allowing all of our preconceived data and understandings to be challenged. Listening is an act of love because as we listen, all of those sorts of tropey images that we might have about someone else or some other group of people quickly start to fall away. And this is exactly what Jesus does in this story. He listens. He allows himself to be Challenge. And to me, that is really amazing, wonderful, good news. That Jesus allows himself to be challenged, that allows someone else to, to change the understanding of his mission and his ministry. That's not only a human piece of Jesus, it's also the, the divine God part of Jesus. That God allows God's self to be challenged over and over again through the Bible uh, to have a new understanding if God has an understanding, which is sort of a weird way for us to think about it. God allows God's self to be challenged by the ideas and the assumptions of others. That Jesus is willing to make that journey beyond the boundary of his own experience is, I think, a good thing. And as he makes that journey, he finds himself challenged by this woman. And we could easily imagine his disciples saying similar things that we might say, or similar things that we have said in the past. That they are socialized within the same worldview that he was. And so they heard the same messages in Sunday school on the flannel graph that he did. Maybe they said things like, why don't we stick closer to home? We've never done anything like this before, Jesus. It's a favorite one in the church, right? Not this church. And yet Jesus takes them beyond the boundary of their own experiences. 
he takes them to a place where stereotypes abound. And they listen. They listen. And as they listen, and as Jesus listens, all of those stereotypes and assumptions about who this woman is begin to fall away. And he finds out that everything that he had been taught and told about her had no basis in reality. That she is not some evil other, but she is the child of God who deserves love and wholeness. She is not beyond the scope of his ministry, but she is very much included within it. In fact, she helps Jesus to expand his vision of what his ministry is and who it's supposed to include. She becomes a person that Jesus describes as a woman of great faith. That's the sort of person that Jesus has been looking for, the kind of people he's been trying to create throughout his entire ministry. And here he finds it beyond the boundary, beyond the, beyond the border of his own experience. This woman is a hero of faith. She's a hero of faith because she challenges Jesus beyond his own experiences. And, and like so many of these heroes of faith that we find in the Gospels, we don't know her name. And I wish so badly that we did. Um, all these, these women characters in the Gospels who do these amazing things and they just get described by uh, some ethnic designation or the designation of their suffering. And I wish we knew her name, but, but perhaps it's for the best that we don't. Because she becomes, for us, any person that we carry around stereotypes and assumptions about. And it helps us to consider, it asks us to consider, how are those folks challenging us beyond the boundaries of our own experiences? That we owe to her the first duty of love, to listen to not hold so tightly to our ideas about who she is or about who others are. The author Kathy Escobar asks, what voices do we most need to give space to in our own lives? What voices do uh, we normally not hear that we need to make an intentional effort to listen to? And when I think about my own life, some of the most profound moments of transformation have been when I have been beyond the boundary of my own experience, learning to listen to others. You know, I've told you all before about my time in Philadelphia and how important that was to me. Um, I grew up in a, a wealthy Chicago suburb, and I had all of these ideas about poverty and homelessness and all these other things. And, and yet I, I found myself working among those who experienced homelessness, not just simply serving them, but having conversations with them. And I found that all of my stereotypes and assumptions about who they were weren't necessarily based in fact. And my understanding of who they were was transformed. Or uh, when I was a student chaplain between my second and last year in seminary, uh, we were interfaith chaplains. We went to visit people of all faith or no faith. And I found that the, some of the most important and meaningful conversations that I had were with those who did not share my faith assumptions, that they challenged me. They helped me to think differently about things. And I found that my own faith was strengthened by those conversations. You know, what the world most needs now is love. It goes back to that song we talked about in the very first week of this uh, sermon series. What the world most needs now is love. And so what the world most needs now are people who can step beyond the boundaries of their own experiences to learn how to listen to anyone who might be called the other, the Canaanite, the one who is designated as evil or one we shouldn't associate with. To go to follow our Lord beyond the boundary of those experiences to listen so that we might understand, to listen so that we might be transformed, to listen so that the world might be touched in all ways by love. Thanks be to God. Amen.